Okay, friends, if you've got a Bible, we are in Psalm uh, 133. The Psalms in Scripture are medicine for the heart. We're looking at the Psalms all summer. The Psalms have always been medicine for the heart for Christ's people. The Benedictines pray the Psalms all the way through every week. The Anglicans pray the Psalms through every month. We are taking them through the summer. And today we are in Psalm 133. Psalm 133, before Brad comes and reads it for us, is what is called a psalm of ascent. There are 15 psalms of ascent. Some scholars think that maybe these 15 psalms were put in the Psalter by King Hezekiah to represent the 15 years that the Lord added to his life. More likely, however, is the fact that these psalms of ascent were psalms that Israel would sing as they would ascend the hill of Jerusalem to come in for the festivals to worship God together. And so you can imagine all of Israel coming, singing these psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, singing these psalms together as they came to worship the one true God. So give your attention now to Brad as he reads God's word and you would stand if you're willing and able, thank you. All right, good morning. This is a song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you now take, you can be seated, please. Father, take this word now, we pray. Open our hearts to give heed to it and change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, amen. An American named Adolphus Greeley led an expedition in 1881 to the Arctic Circle, where they were going to explore and retrieve scientific data about the greatest frozen tundra on planet Earth. Except on their way to their expedition, their ship wrecked. And Adolphus Greeley and his men were stranded in the most remote place in all of the Earth. Every rescue attempt failed. For four and a half months, they made a makeshift house in this white, completely white world. And they huddled together, and their, frozen ba- their, their sleeping bags froze to the ground. Frost clothed everything. And they knew that in this world of total and utter whiteness, where there was no night, that they had to figure out how to organize their time because they were becoming quickly disoriented. And for four and a half months before supplies finally arrived for them, they decided that they would set apart times of their week for weekly Sabbath, for worship. And Commander Greeley grabbed his Bible, 
frozen with frost, and he opened up to Psalm 131. And he read this psalm, and he looked at these men in the eyes. There were six of them in this little hut, freezing to death. And they looked at each other, and they read Psalm 131, and they said, if we are going to survive, we have got to stay unified. Greeley wrote later on that for months without drinking water, destitute of warmth and with sleeping bags, frozen solid to the ground, with walls, roof, and floor covered in frost and ice, deprived of sufficient light, heat, or food, they were never without courage, faith, and hope. By an insatiable commitment to unity, these six men, against insurmountable odds, survived. And the Lady Franklin Bay Expedition between 1881 and 1884 is still to this day the greatest demonstration of leadership that the Western world has ever witnessed. Listen, I know it's 100 degrees outside. (laughs) But no summer heat, no deep, deep drought can thaw the frozen hearts of many people in this town who have been hurt by the church. No Oklahoma summer heat, no deep, deep drought can thaw the disappointment and betrayal that families feel within their own doors. No summer heat No deep, deep drought can melt the hearts of people who are held captive by their sin. And this verse, this psalm for us, becomes a kind of blowtorch for the gospel to thaw the winter of the frozen hearts of people in Owasso. Because listen, Will, Mike, Nathan, Jason, there are only five of us. Five of us. But our task in leading this church is no less harrowing and dangerous as Commander Greeley's expedition was over 100 years ago. Because we deal with frostbite of the first order, the frostbite of our own hearts. And we are planting a church in a city where people are confused about the gospel, where they have been frozen over again and again with more things to do to be a better person than maybe God would like them because they're well-behaved. And people are freezing because they're not hearing the warm, beautiful good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, what does unity and leadership look like? That's what this psalm shows us. So let's look at it together, shall we, in the moments that we have together. I'm principally preaching this sermon to the five elders of our church principally really to Jason, who's going to become a new elder, and to Brandon and to Kendall. But I'm preaching to the leaders of our church, and we get to listen to it.
What does unity and leadership look like? Ask yourself that question as we explore the text together. This psalm is a blowtorch of the gospel so that the hearts of men and women frozen by sin might understand what it means to find rest in the warm embrace of their heavenly Father. What unites us? What unites us? Like, look, look around. Like, this isn't rhetorical. Like, what, what, we all look pretty similar, right? Does that unite us? No. We're all relatively well-educated. Does that unite us? No. So what unites this church? We're Presbyterian? Listen, there are people, Episcopalian, Anglican, Baptist, there are people in this church who have no idea what any of those terms mean. That doesn't unite us. What unites this church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is the gospel? It is the good news, friends, that we are more broken and sinful than we could ever imagine. And in Jesus Christ, more loved and accepted than we could ever dare to dream at the exact same time. And as we hold out that truth to Owasso and to Bartlesville and to Tulsa and to Claremore and to Skytook and Vanita and the world, we become a blowtorch to cripple the winter that has frozen so many hearts. What does unity look like? It looks like the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book in 1939 called Life Together, and this is what Bonhoeffer had to say. The church does not need brilliant personalities, but faithful servants of Jesus and the brethren. Pastoral authority can be attained only by the servant of Jesus who seeks no power of his own, who himself is a brother among brothers submitted to the authority of the word. The word unity in Hebrew here is the word yachad. It's a fun word to say. Can you say yachad? Yachad. Yes, thank you. I gave you an excuse to clear your throat. Yachad. It's the word in Greek that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translate homothumadon. It's a fun word to say. You want to say that word together? Homothumadon. It means to be of one mind. It means to be unanimous. In this context, King David is thinking about how beautiful it is when brothers can dwell together in the same land. You, you remember the story of Abraham and Lot, the land wouldn't sustain both brothers, and so they had to decide where they would go, and they split up. Or you think about the story of Esau and Jacob in Genesis chapter 36. The land wouldn't sustain both brothers' families, and so they split up. But here David is saying how good and pleasant it is when brothers can dwell, can live in unity on the same land because it's fruitful enough for them to sustain each family together. What does unity look like? I was reminded of this. Between my junior and senior year of college, I, I lived on a houseboat in Srinagar, India, in the Himalayas. And on Lake Srinagar, um, 
we, we lived and in, in that's where most of the foreigners lived out on the water on these floating houses. And there was one church in town and one Sunday I decided, well, I, I, would, I, would, I would go to church. And so I found the only evangelical church in this little town of Srinagar, India in the far north part of Kashmir. And I went to this church and we sang our lights out and we had a service very much like this. We confessed our faith. We heard a preacher preach the gospel. We took the Lord's Supper. And then I was shocked because after that service, and I wasn't the only foreigner or the only American there, but I had families that lined up who wanted to take me to lunch, much like some of you experience when you come here. It's totally weird for me. And so this, this Kashmiri family took me in, and we went and we had masala dosa in their house, and we sat on the floor on these beautiful, beautiful Persian rugs, and they gave me tea and bread, and it was fantastic. And then you know what else happened toward the end of that meal? There was a knock on the door, and guess what? There was a Pakistani family who had crossed the border who lived in Kashmir. They were believers. It was their turn, and so they took me to their house, and I had more tea with them, I didn't like the masala. I couldn't eat more masala. So I had more tea with them. And we enjoyed each other's fellowship, and I learned about their culture. And then after that uh, time together, it was getting late in the afternoon, there was an American missionary family. And they came over to their friends, the Pakistanis, and they knocked on the door. And then they took me into their house, which I was much more comfortable and used to. I got to sit in chairs and a couch. And we talked about what it means to be an American missionary in a foreign world. And I got back to my houseboat that night, late into the night. And all of my housemates had already had their dinner and they were getting ready for bed. And they said, Altman, like, what kind of secret society are you a part of? And I said, dudes, it ain't no secret society. It's called the church. Our unity ex expresses itself when we let everybody come through these doors who are desperate for the gospel. Doesn't matter what color they are. Doesn't matter where they live. Doesn't matter their past. People who are desperate for the gospel. We are unified, unified about one thing. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you come from a background different than Presbyterianism, listen, you are as welcome and as crucial to this church plant as the guy preaching the sermon and wearing the robe. We are unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the truth that we are more broken and sinful than we can ever imagine and yet more loved and accepted in Jesus than we could ever dare to dream at the exact same time. And here's the point of the text. There can be no everlasting brotherhood of men without or apart from the ever-loving fatherhood of God. There can be no everlasting, eternal, lasting, permanent brotherhood of men apart from the ever-loving fatherhood of God. That's what the psalm says. Behold how good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And this unity breaks out by showing what is good and what is sweet. The goodness of our unity is seen in the commitment to our calling. Deacons, elders, do you hear me? The unity of our brotherhood is seen in our fierce commitment to our calling. And what is our calling? Well, let's look. 
there, in the original, there is no it is at the first of verse two. It just says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, like the precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of Aaron. The picture of oil being anointed on Aaron comes from Genesis chapter 30, where Aaron was the first high priest anointed, anointed to be set apart for the purpose of being a picture of the mediator between man and God. Though Aaron was imperfect, no doubt about it, his calling was to call the people of Israel to worship the one true God through the feasts and the festivals and the practices that God had instituted in the Old Testament law, the Torah. And so Aaron's job was to call them back to faithful covenant promise that God had given at this point in time to Abraham, his brother, so that they might worship him in spirit and truth. Genesis 30, 30 says, You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall be poured on the body of an ordinary person. It shall not, rather, be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. The goodness of our unity is seen in our commitment to our calling. What is our calling? Our calling is to know, to love, to protect, and to feed our people. You have to know them. That means you have to be in their houses. You have to know their stories. You have to bear their burdens. You have to love them which means that even when it's hard, even when you can't relate, you enter their world and you love them as though that were your situation. And you lay down your life for them. You protect them. You say things to people sometimes. Listen, this is the hardest thing about being a pastor for me. You say things to people sometimes that they so desperately need to hear, but you are so fearful that they will receive it in a way that leads to your rejection, leads to a broken friendship, leads to tension. But you want to protect them in love from the heresies that people can so easily believe about the gospel and from sinful tendencies in their own heart that they begin to cover up, that they don't see because they have blind spots, just like you do. And so it's our job to protect the sheep. And that goes for each one of us as elders of this church, to love each other enough, to say hard things to each other, to protect each other. Know, love, protect, and feed. How do you feed them? You feed them with the good news of the gospel again and again and again. You show them what God's law says as a way to rejoice in their acceptance by the Father, not to obey the law to get God to love you more. He can't love you any more than he already does, but to live out with joy the life he calls you to live in utter dependence upon him and to do so resting on Jesus' finished work for you. That's how people come to rest and worship. Like, 
so many of us come to worship and we leave exhausted because we're worn down by more and more demands upon our time or more and more demands upon our moral behavior. Listen, this is one of the reasons why the deacons and the elders have got to fight. We have got to fight for how to make worship set up, for example, sustainable. Because it is wrong of us to have a setup that is so demanding of those who set up that when they come to worship, it takes them half the service to get over their anger and frustration that they just had to set up. And when we have a building, by the way, here's a telegram, it won't get any easier because then it will be the air conditioner and then it will be the door, then it will be the attic, then it will be the roof, the plumbing, it could be worse. <laughs> but we've got to fight to help people rest and worship. Are you resting in worship? Are you resting by listening to God's word, asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you in a very personal way? That's how you rest in worship. The gospel is not, I mean, the, the sermon is not the central part of worship. The Lord's presence is what is central in worship. The sermon only complements the Lord's presence by helping you focus on his word and learn and grow and move to repentance in it. So, we've got, to be, we've got to be leaders who demonstrate the goodness of our unity through our commitment to our calling. There's a place in Jeremiah chapter 23 where Jeremiah goes after those who had forfeit their calling in the Lord. And it is the, the most scary passage in Scripture for me, here's what it says. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastor, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus the Lord God says to Israel concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and you have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. I don't want that kind of attendance. And people who lead churches can scatter the flock when they begin to make that organization more about them than it is about Jesus. What unifies us? Not our worship style, not our denomination. What unifies us is the gospel. And the goodness of our unity, it's good and sweet, isn't it? Good and pleasant. The goodness of our unity is seen in our commitment to our calling. Behold, my people have forsaken me. They've committed two sins, Jeremiah says in chapter two. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewn for themselves broken cisterns, cisterns that can hold no water. That's the default mode of almost everybody in this city, including the five leaders of this church. And we've got to fiercely come back again and again to our calling by looking at the gospel. Secondly, our unity is pleasant. It's sweet. The sweetness of our unity is seen in our commitment to our repentance. Like the dew of Hermon. Hermon wasn't close to Jerusalem. It was a mountaintop far away. Scholars are divided over what this dew means, whether it was the dew from the mountains that the clouds took up and then dropped on Jerusalem. They don't exactly, they're not unified on what exactly the dew of Hermon means, but what we do know it means is that dew cannot form without what? Stillness and rest. 
Dew doesn't form in hurricanes. It doesn't form in a storm and in a crisis. It forms when the environment is one where people can come and be still and rest. And we want to cultivate a worship service that allows us and gives us permission that admits to the storms and the craziness and the nuts of life that there's one hour and 20 minutes of our week when we can count on every week when we can come and we can be still and we can rest in the presence of our Savior who loves us. The sweetness of our unity is found in our commitment, is seen in our commitment to repentance. Listen, Last night, I was, in, I was in Love Field in Dallas, and I was trying to get home after doing the work of the church and, at the Presbytery in Dallas, and um, I almost missed my flight because we were delayed out of Dallas. I had to fly from Dallas to Houston to get to Tulsa. You know how that works, right? So I was flying to Dallas, and long story short, we were delayed, and I was worried I was going to miss my flight. And I began to think, could I drive, if I get on, if this flight takes off and I get to Houston, which is further away from where I want to go, could I, could I rent a car and drive through the night to get to worship? Like, is that possible? And I began to worry. I began to worry about it. Like, what if I'm not at worship? We're going to install the new deacons in Jason. What if I'm not there? And I, and, and I remember as we were flying and I saw on my phone that my flight in Houston had been delayed so that our flight could get there. I, I just remember being profoundly thankful that God delayed that flight. And thankfulness is a good thing, but you know what? I was more thankful, more thankful that Jesus held that flight for me so that I could get back to Tulsa. I was profoundly thankful for it, but I was more thankful for that than I was that I've been forgiven of my sin and that I've been covered in his righteousness. And in my gratitude for being able to get home, I had to repent that I was not more thankful for the fact that I had been given everything in Jesus and that my identity is not in my calling as a minister or as a friend or as a husband or as a daddy. My calling is through Christ. We've got to be people who are the chief repenters, who are fierce about repenting. What does this do? It leads people into deeper worship of the triune God. Because the only perfect person in this room is Jesus. And it helps us to worship him. It helps worship to be a place of rest. It leads us into deeper community where we learn how to become friends. We're teaching our children how to become friends on the playground, but you and I, some of us need to learn how to be friends again and be able to talk about deep issues of the heart that we've never talked about before because we are so fiercely independent. And some of us are dying on the vine because we are afraid to let people know about our brokenness. So we as the elders of this church want to cultivate a community where people feel broken about their sin. They can talk about it. We also want to help people rediscover their calling so that when men go to work, when women go to work Monday through Friday, when women, men are home with their kids, their calling is not, not just something they do at church activities, but their calling is extending the gospel into the industries of their fields of expertise by doing excellent work. Like you can think about your elders here, like, like Will Parker. What is Will Parker? Like Will Parker is the principal of a high school. No, he's not. He represents the priestly office of Jesus. 
at that school by nurturing students in head and heart to grow in wisdom. And he is an extension of the kingdom of God. To be one who brings the garden, as it were, into that school and cultivates it. Every student, staff member, and teacher at a time. He's a priest at that school. Or Mike Phelps. Mike Phelps is a mechanical engineer. No, he's not. Mike Phelps takes very complicated buildings and he makes them livable by providing AC for it and heat. What is he doing? Mike is extending the creative work of God into the sphere of architecture. He's helping people see the beauty of creation by extending the garden into places with four walls and a roof, by creating a great environment for life to happen. His calling is more than just earning a paycheck by working for his company. It's extending the kingdom through his gifts. Or Nathan Keltner, what does Nathan do? Nathan represents the kingship of Jesus. He protects us from bad guys. He protects companies from those who hack other companies. He protects us from all of our enemies. That's exactly what Jesus does. He protects us in it. And as we understand our role and as we extend our community, men and women will begin to rediscover their calling and think about their jobs in a different way. It's not just that they're earning a paycheck. They don't just leave their faith at church and then go to work and come home. They see themselves as part of a much bigger story of God reconciling and redeeming all things through his work, even through his unique giftedness of individuals. Listen, Jason Kreider is a chemist. He has a PhD in chemistry. But he's more than a chemist. This passage is exactly what Jason does. He takes very, very tiny molecules that otherwise wouldn't stick together and he helps them stick together. He is a doctor of unity, and he helps companies through helping molecules stay unified, develop plastics and develop other products that allow an oil company to transfer large amounts of liquid across very large swaths of land. He connects things. He unifies things. And in so doing, he is a picture of God coming into the world to connect us one to another, and again with himself. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And as we understand our callings in light of the kingdom, we help each other understand our callings in light of the kingdom, and we learn how the gospel integrates into the whole of our life, not just the particular programs of the church or merely particular steps in growing in your knowledge of the Bible during Bible studies. That's what we hope our church becomes. The goodness of our unity is seen in our commitment to our calling, and the sweetness of our unity is seen in our commitment to repentance. This will help us rest in worship, grow in community, and it will help us rediscover our callings for the good of Northeast Oklahoma. And there's going to be times, brothers, when you've got to learn to give each other the benefit of the doubt and always assume the best. Allow the Holy Spirit to work when you feel threatened or when you feel defensive. Fight to encourage each other and to enjoy each other. This goes for all of us, not just the deacons and elders of this church. Express concerns to each other in love. 
and keep the gospel and the vision of this church always before your eyes. C.S. Lewis writes about the changing seasons in the line which in the wardrobe. And he says, during a time when it was always winter and never Christmas, he goes, he says, there was never a trace, there was no trace of the fog now. The sky became bluer and bluer, and now there were white clouds hurrying across from time to time. In the wide glades, there were primroses. A light breeze sprang up, which scattered drops of moisture from the swaying branches and carried cool, delicious scents against the faces of the travelers. The trees began to come fully alive. The larches and the birches were covered with green, the laburnums with gold, and soon the beech trees had put forth their delicate, transparent leaves. And as the travelers walked under them, light also became green through the reflection of the branches. A bee buzzed across the path. This is a children's book, but it's a picture of the growing church coming out of a crippling winter. And this is no fall, the dwarf said to the white witch. This is spring. What are we to do? This, I tell you, is the destruction of winter. This is Aslan's doing. And in C.S. Lewis's work, Aslan, of course, represents the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Aslan's doing, brothers. This is not the work of the PCA not the work of a church plant strategy. This is the Lord Jesus Christ's doing. And we want all of you to be involved as we together follow these men who are unified by the gospel. And the goodness of their unity is seen in their commitment to their calling, to love, know, protect, and feed you. And the sweetness of their unity is seen in their commitment to their repentance. Can we follow a group of guys like that? Let's do so as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of this church. Let's pray together.